All right, um, we're looking at the life of Paul. We started this last week. We're going to go to Acts 9 today. There are four different places we could actually go for this story. This is uh, where the story, this, this part of the Bible describes the story, and then Paul will talk about this because it's part of his coming to Christ. Um, in Acts 22, the text here in last week, Acts 26, and also Galatians 1. But uh, let's uh, turn our Bibles to Acts 9. Does anybody have a blue Bible? Can you give me a page number? 890, if you have a blue Bible. If you can stand, we'd like to stand for the reading of God's Word. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way is what these uh, first disciples of Jesus called themselves, from Isaiah 35, the way of holiness. So anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So as Paul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, Paul was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Damascus, there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Hanani, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him and restore him his sight. It's probably the longest pause in scripture right here. <laughs> Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has actually come with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. You can be seated. We're obviously going to be talking about conversion this morning. The debate with Saul, though, is, was he converted? Um in light of the fact that he's, he's a Jew and he's someone who loves God and, and, and believes in God, has devoted his life to God. And so some people will just say he was completed. Other people say, no, he was converted. Um, I don't think it really matters because conversion is, is something that happens to us. And you could even say in a moment, but you could also say it's something that we're in the process throughout our whole life. And uh, so last week, we, we, we looked at Paul's life and, and his upbringing, and we saw that he was raised in this world-renowned Hellenistic city of Tarsus, which is the, the intellectual center of, of the Roman Empire. And so he's raised in this prestigious Greek city. Um, but he's raised in, in a devout Jewish home, and he, he went to synagogue, he was educated in synagogue, which means he, he learned the text. And he didn't just learn the stories of the text, but he is a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, as we found out. And so he would have probably had the whole text memorized by the time he was 16 years old. Um, 
And that's why he says, I, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, we, we are a family that did not get Hellenized, but we have remained true to our God in every way, starting with the text. Now, at some point, we know that Paul is sent to Jerusalem. And in Acts 26, verse 4, um, he implies that following his youth, that's when he, he went to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, who we learned last week is to this day to the Jews in their top seven of all-time greatest rabbis. And uh, so I, I know enough about what the uh, Jewish education process would have looked like, and this goes all the way back to the first century, uh, so this would apply to Paul, it would apply to Jesus. From 5 to 12, a Jewish child would be educated in the synagogue. And, and there the thing that they would learn would be the text of Scripture. And again, they, they would be hiding the word in their heart. Then they would have their bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. That's when they uh, have this rite of passage into adulthood, which all centered on the fact that they know God's word, and now they're responsible to walk that out in their life. Then up until age 16, uh, Paul would continue to study the text in the synagogue, but he would also begin to learn his father's trade. And we know what his father's trade was because uh, Paul has that trade. He's a tent maker. Then at 16, uh, that son would go into his father's business. Unless they were extremely gifted and they knew the text so well. Then they would find a rabbi and study under that rabbi. The fact that Paul, then at that point in life, is sent to Jerusalem to not just study under any rabbi, but under the best of the best, besides Jesus, um, in that day, tells us Paul's the best of the best. I mean, this would be like going to Harvard. And Paul says this in Galatians 1, verse 14, about his upbringing. He said, I advanced ahead of all my peers. I, I, I was top of my class. He's top of his class, not just at any school, but even in the, in the classroom of, of being at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. Now, here's something else that I, I, I want us to, to consider, and maybe this is just for me, uh, because for some reason, in all of my upbringing and study of Paul and Jesus, I put Jesus over, way over here in this bucket. I put Paul way over here in this bucket. And it never occurred to me until I took a class last year at GRTS on Romans where the professor said, there is no way that Paul could not have heard about Jesus, let alone heard Jesus teach and probably witnessed a lot of the ministry of Jesus. And I'm like, what? And I just thought about it. Yeah. Paul's in Jerusalem. When Jesus is always making visits to Jerusalem. And if you think Paul triggered people, especially the people living in Jerusalem, Jesus triggered them even more. And as this upstart, cocky know-it-all, he's for sure going to be intrigued. And I just think that that's important that we, we, we bring Paul and Jesus together, that we don't Keep them so separate. Now, our text begins with, with Paul breathing these murderous threats. I want us to know that, that Paul is doing a lot more than just intimidating Jewish brothers and sisters who are following Christ as Messiah. Like, let me just um, read from other places where, where, where Paul talks about what, what he was doing. In Acts 22, verse 4, the text that we were in last week, he said, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Wow. He's arresting them. He's putting them to death. In in verse 19 of that same chapter, as he he says, Lord, I reply, these people know that I went from one synagogue to to another to, to arrest them and to imprison them and to beat those who believe in you. In Acts 26, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them uh, to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now, I don't really know if you remember, but, but Jesus, before he died, he, he told his followers, he said, look, he said, you're going to be persecuted. He said, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be handed over to the authorities. Some of you are going to be put to death. He said, when this happens, I want you to flee the, the, that city and, and, and go to another. And that's exactly what the Christians are doing. They are fleeing Jerusalem because of, of, of all the, the activity of Paul and, and the chief priests. And that's why Paul is going to Damascus. Because that's where they flee to. He's hunting them down. And what I want us to know is that Paul isn't just some rogue character doing this out of his own conviction. That Paul has graduated into the halls of power. That he's in with the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And he's even in with the top dog himself, the chief priest. And these are all the same elites who are responsible for putting Jesus to death. Now what's behind all this for Paul? Why is he doing this? This is what I find a bit interesting. Paul, we know, he says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. We also know that Gamaliel is a Pharisee. Pharisees are pacifists. They have a very, very strong conviction that we are to never pick up the sword, that it's God's to, to avenge our enemies. Our responsibility is simply to be faithful to God. In fact, uh, we have this even in the text. In Acts 5 already, when the, the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, is, is trying to figure out what to do with these, these Christians, these Jewish Christians, um, it says when, when, when they heard about these Christians, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. This is the Supreme Court. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So the disciples had to leave the room. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do these men. This is the case that I, I, I present, that I advise you to do. Leave these men alone. Let them go. Let them be free. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is actually from God, you will not be able to stop these men, and you will only find yourselves fighting against God. Let them go. Don't, put, don't raise a sword. So Paul has obviously departed from even his rabbi, and the reason for this is because Paul has become a zealot. Now what's a zealot? A zealot is essentially a Pharisee, with a knife. Torah in one hand, a sword in the other. And the reason why uh, the zealot, what, what, what's motivating the zealot to pick up the sword is the Torah. Because they read the text and they see that a lot of their heroes like Caleb and Joshua and Moses and David and Elijah all picked up the sword to bring in the kingdom of heaven. And so, this is, this, is, this is Paul. In fact, their hero is, is Phineas because they not only think that we need to pick up the sword to, to take on our oppressors, but we even need to take on the sword against our own people who also stand against God and who God has called his people to be. And that's because of their hero Phineas. Phineas in the Old Testament um, when, when the Moabites were, were coming in and trying to seduce the people of God and, 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 and God's people were prostituting themselves, uh, one Israelite man was actually copulating with a Moabite prostitute in the Lord's house. And Phineas, if you know the story, takes a spear. And it's, it's basically a two for one. 
and, and kills them both. But it's, it's what is said after that. God speaks to that and says, that was a righteous act. And Phineas, that will be counted as righteousness to you. So if we get into, into Paul's mind, uh, Paul is thinking that these, these Jewish followers of Christ are heretics, that they are contaminating our synagogues now with their heretical teaching. Like, he, he's looking at, at, at them as this virus that needs to be eradicated. So Paul, in his mind, is, is thinking that he is doing God such a huge favor. He probably thinks of himself as... as I mean, he's the best of the best. I'm a new Elijah. I'm a new Moses. And yet his, his, his rabbi, Gamaliel, is so prophetic on this matter when he says, if this is a movement of God, you will never be able to stop it. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. And he doesn't even know it. He thinks he's fighting for God. In reality, he's fighting against God. If his eyes could actually be open to that reality, it would, it would crush him. Because he loves God. And it does crush him, as we're going to see. But before we go any further, I have to ask this question. Who, who's the hero of this story? The main character is not Paul. The hero and the main character of this story is Jesus. And how did Jesus teach his followers to treat their enemies? Those who wrong us, those who hurt us, those, those who speak against us. What did Jesus say? He said, I want you to bless them. I want you to pray for them. I want you to do good to them. I want you to love them. I want you to forgive them. Why? Because that's God's heart. And that's what Jesus lived out, even on the cross. He's praying, God, forgive them, for they, they don't even know what they're doing. Jesus' disciple Stephen, trying to be like his rabbi Jesus, as he's dying, as he's being stoned, prays the same thing, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what this story is about, first and foremost, it is about how Jesus treats his enemies, how he responds to his enemies. Paul has become his arch enemy. And Jesus is going to hunt him down with his grace and his love and his mercy as Paul is hunting down these Christians. And that could be our only takeaway today. Be a follower of Christ. Be like him. Especially as it relates to our enemies. Now Jesus hunts Paul down. He addresses Paul, and this doesn't mean much to you, but I still think it's worth mentioning. He's going to say, Saul, Saul. He's going to address him by his Hebrew name because a, a Jew born in the diaspora, the scattering outside the promised land in the Gentile world, was given two names at their birth. They were given a Hebrew name and they were given a Gentile name. Paul's uh, Hebrew name is Saul. Shual means to ask for. Saul is named after. And he says, I'm from the tribe of ben Benjamin. So he's named, named after the greatest Benjamite ever, King Saul. And the people of God asked for a king. And so God gave them Mr. Asked For. They gave him Saul, Shual. That's Paul's Hebrew name. Throughout Paul's whole life, his family, in synagogue, every Jew would have called him Saul. His Greek name is Paul or Paulus. Uh, it's, it's a Latin word that, and I find this to be significant, it means small. In my opinion, uh, the reason why now, after this event, why Paul now is going to start using his Greek name instead of his Hebrew name is for the obvious reason that he is going to be sent to the Gentiles, 
But I also think that this is the result of the gospel. The gospel took someone who, who saw himself in, in, in such big ways, and all of a sudden, Paul becomes small in his own eyes. Jesus doesn't just say Saul. He says, Saul, Saul. Now, anytime there's this repetition of the name, it has significance. Think about even in the Gospels when Jesus does this. He does it with Martha. Martha, Martha. You're worried. You're upset about many things. He does it with Simon Peter. Simon, Simon. Uh, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. This, this doubling of the name is, is an expression of, of deep affection and love. Jesus will look at Jerusalem the last week of his life. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you in my arms the way a mother chick does her, her, her chicks. The one that just cuts me to my heart is um, Christ on the cross. He says, my God, my God, I love you. I put my affection on you. Why have you forsaken me? And so you have to just see this, 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 uh, this, this expression, that's co- this expression of, of kindness and, and love and affection that's coming from Jesus when he says this. But also we see this doubling of the name in the Old Testament. And, and yes, when God does this, it, it conveys also this affection and this love. But it's also a sign of God's call, that that God is now about to raise someone up through whom he's going to do an incredible thing. So you have Moses, Moses, I'm raising you up. I'm raising you up to send you to Pharaoh to set my people free. You have Samuel, Samuel, I'm raising you up. I'm raising you up to be a great prophet and a great judge to bring my people back to God. Uh, He says to Jacob, Jacob. I'm raising you up to uh, become father of a great people. And through this people, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The one that really also uh, just causes me to just stop in my tracks is Abraham. Abraham, put down your knife. That's not what you're called to do. That's my call. Put my son on the altar. And... uh, now we have Saul, Saul. And so Saul knows that whoever is speaking to him not only loves him intensely, but this person is going to place huge calling on his life. And this is why Paul says, who is it, Lord? Who is it? Who's talking to me? It's Jesus from Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I want us to right now see, and I never want to put Jesus and Paul on, on, on the same playing field, but they're two primary people in our New Testament. They are now coming face to face. And Paul is going to later write, he's going to say, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God himself is seen in the face of Christ. He sees that face. And he's then going to write, he's like, that face, even though we are nothing more than just these broken clay pots, that when that face shines in our lives, that he's put that in us. Now, here's something I think that we fail to uh, consider, but I want us to consider it. Every time, Someone encounters Christ face to face. And I'm thinking especially of the Old Testament because Christ is all over the Old Testament. It is a very traumatic and frightening experience. Adam and Eve, when Jesus walks into that garden, where are you? They are frightened. They are hiding. They are in terror. Moses, in Exodus 3, and we, we, we just kind of think of that, that burning bush um, that, that, that's not burning up, but we don't consider who's in that burning bush, and it's Christ. And, and Moses is in utter terror. He covers his face. 
Jacob that night when he's wrestling with this stranger. And at some point in the game, he starts to realize that this is no stranger, that he's wrestling with God himself. And, and he says the next morning, he's like, I, was, I wrestled with God and I saw him face to face and yet my life was spared. And this list goes on and on of people who are absolutely terrified and overwhelmed by the awe-inspiring glory of Christ. Uh, in the New Testament, John in Revelation 1, when he sees Christ in all his glory, all he can do is fall down like a dead man. I think the person that really expresses this the most is, is Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, when, when he encounters Christ, the only thing he can say is, I'm ruined. I'm undone. Now, to be undone is, is, is to come apart at the seams. It, 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 it's to be unraveled. I think it's what modern psychologists describe as this experience of personal deintegration. And personal de- uh, or disintegration is, is just like it sounds. I mean, its root word is integer, which means whole, or integrity, which is a, a life that is whole or all put together. And, and so personal disintegration is, is, is a life that is unraveling. It's a, it's a life that's falling apart. And psychologists recognize that trauma and, and tragedy can, can literally do this to someone. Now, we don't think of an encounter with, with Christ in this way. But, but just think about Isaiah. I mean, here is a prophet of God. I mean, if anyone has their life all put together, it's him. And yet all he can say in the presence of God is, I'm undone. I'm unraveling. I'm ruined. And Paul is, is the same thing. I mean, Paul, I mean, are you kidding? He has everything put together in his life at this, at this moment. And we need to understand that it's all now starting to unravel. I mean, this proud, performance-driven perfectionist. And we know the whole basis of his identity. All those I am statements in in Philippians 3, where he says, I'm an Israelite, and I'm a Benjaminite, and I'm head of my class. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as to the the keeping of Torah, I'm faultless. I'm perfect. And all this now is starting to unravel and fall apart. If you think this is a cruel thing that Christ is doing, then you don't understand who Christ is or what Christ came to the world to do. Christ did not come to this world to live a life, to die a death, to be raised and ascended to God's right hand so that you could believe a few things about him. So you could sprinkle a little Jesus on your life. He came to this world to remake you. To remake us. So that the only way that you can put it is the way that Jesus puts it with that other Pharisee, Nicodemus. It's nothing more than being born again. Or like Paul is going to talk about in Corinthians, he's going to say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And this is all in the text. Uh, and, and it's all hinted at. Yes, Paul. for Paul, he's experiencing his life unraveling, uh, even his self all falling apart in this moment. But like in verse 8, it says, Saul got up from the ground. And I don't want to rip on the NIV. I want you to have great confidence in this. But they just translated out uh, some of the rich nuances of the original language. The, the word for arise there is the verb form of the noun resurrection. Paul is being resurrected. And where he, what's he being resurrected from? From the ground, from the earth. Because this is what God is doing in Paul's life. And then go to the next verse in verse 9. For three days Paul was blind. His whole world goes dark. He did not eat or drink a thing. Uh, Three in the Bible is always that number that symbolizes restoration and resurrection. 
And so, even though in these three days that Paul is going to be blind and he's going to be all alone, wrecked and undone, you need to know that this is all the process of Paul's life being raised up, resurrected. But I want us to just think about those three days of darkness, aloneness. where Paul probably has the words of Jesus just ringing in his mind. Paul, why are you persecuting me? I can just see him. I can see him all just kind of crumpled on the floor and, and, and coming to, to grips with this, where, where he thought he was helping God. He didn't, he didn't even begin to realize that he was hurting. Not just God's people. He has blood on his hands. He's hurt Christ. And the utter shame and humiliation that he was probably experiencing was overwhelming. Paul reminds me of one of those characters in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub. I mean, that name pretty much says it all about this character. Um, he's kind of this little selfish brat of a kid, a little know-it-all, um, who gets thrust into the world of Narnia. He comes across this, this cave. It's a, it, it, it's a dragon's cave, but he goes into it, and he sees all this treasure. And he's just like wallowing in this treasure. I mean, all the greed that's in his heart now is just coming to fruition. That night, he, he finds this huge pile of gold, and he just sleeps on it. And he wakes up the next morning, he finds out he's not a boy anymore. He's a dragon. And he goes, and he, he's just, he's trying so hard to take all this dragon off him, trying to peel away the skin, and he can get a layer torn off every now and then, but as quickly as he gets it off, it, it, it just grows back again. And then that, that lion, that, that Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia shows up, Aslan. And, and he says, then the lion said to me, if you want me to heal you, You'll have to let me undress you. He said, I was afraid of his claws, but I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back in his arms, and I let him do it. He says, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling all that skin off, and it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pure pleasure of feeling all of that stuff peel off until I was just a boy again. Jesus has claws. And his claw, if he's going to remake us and raise us up into something altogether new, it needs to go all the way into our heart. He needs to cut through all the pride, all the pretentiousness, our false self, our image, our hypocrisy. Like an onion, he just needs to peel us back, layer upon layer of dragon skin, the, the, the stuff of self, self-protection, uh, self-obsession, self-absorption, self-importance, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. All of this dragon skin has to be removed. And only Christ can do it. Only Christ. And for this to happen, we, we, we need to place ourselves in his arms. We need to trust him. We need to be willing to give up control. We need to humble ourselves under his almighty hand. And see, there are, there, there are two beautiful things that, that happen during these three days that, that speak to how you and I and Paul, of course, included, can be born again. How we can be made into something altogether new. New creations. Lives that are, that are resurrected and, and raised up into what God intended when he made us. 
And the one thing is what Paul does, and, and the other thing is, is what God does. And I'll, I'll start with Paul. So for, for three days, it's like Paul is left to wallow in his blindness. The only thing Paul can see is his sin. And for three days, he's left with just confronting himself, who he is, what he has become. And I'll tell you, at some point in life, or many points in life, we all have to come to this place. We all have to be willing to be confronted with with, with who we really are. Underneath all the layers and layers, who are we? And what is it that we have really begun, become? And I'll tell you, in this place, Paul has two options, just like we have two options. We can either keep doubling down, we can just keep insisting we're not that bad, we can keep insisting that we're actually right, we can keep insisting that we're on the right path, we can, we, we can even deal with our guilt uh, that we might feel from time to time by just, you know, praying prayers like Paul prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like this person or those people, and look at all the good stuff that I do. I mean, I give to the poor, I'm about justice, I pray twice a day. That's one option. The other option is we can actually humble ourselves and acknowledge who we are uh, before a, a, a good and holy God. And in this place of acknowledgement, we can repent. And, and we can look at Paul's life and say, okay, now what is it that Paul needs to repent of? And for us, it's kind of obvious, but for Paul... It wouldn't be as obvious because you have to understand in Paul's mind, everything that he has done, even when it comes to him being a zealot, that's all part of his badge of honor. It's all part of this good Paul. And so it's not that Paul so much has to repent of his badness. What Paul really has to repent of is his goodness. Because Paul has come to this place in his life where he has put complete trust in himself, complete trust in what he can do, what he can perform, what he can accomplish. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to God's word, um, I am faultless. I'm this, I'm that, I've done this. I've performed this. And I'm going to quote Tim Keller right now. He said, it's not so much our good things or our bad things that keep us from Christ. It's our good things. As Tim Keller says, it's our damnable good works. And this is what Paul needs to repent of, not his badness. Paul actually needs to repent of his goodness and trusting that goodness. Because it's a dangerous thing. And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know your I am statements by which you have built your identity. I am this. I am good at this. I've done this. I've accomplished this. But at some point in the game, that needs to be completely undone. Where we come to a place where we absolutely know I need a Savior. Because with every fiber of our being, we can say like Paul can say, I, Paul, I am chief of sinners. And Paul isn't just saying that in in, in this place, but he says that even at the end of his life. This is the new I am statement for Paul. That's what I am. See, because only once when we get to this place can we really encounter the Savior. And I think the, the, the part of this story that, that gets so much of our attention is Paul encountering Jesus on the Damascus Road. But, but the thing that we don't see as quickly is, is Paul's encounter of Jesus through Ananias. 
And I think it's his encounter with Jesus through Ananias is a thing that utterly changes Paul's heart. Because that's when the scales uh, fall off his eyes. And we read how, how God sends Ananias to Paul. And, and Ananias, of course, at first protests at this. I mean, this is a little bit like Jonah being sent to Nineveh. Like, God, why are you sending me to the enemy? This guy hates people like me. He wants to arrest people like me, even kill people like me. And I love God's response in verse 15. God says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, to kings, to the house of Israel. And he is called to suffer much. And Ananias goes probably with fear and trepidation. But here's the deal. Ananias is not going to proud Saul. He's not going to this guy who thinks he's at the top of his class and who's uh, at the table with the most powerful people and someone who says, yes, to Tarah, I'm, I'm, I'm faultless. He's coming to a Paul who's wrecked, who's broken, who is humbled, who is humiliated, who is crumpled up in the ground, low. And when Ananias walks into that house, knowing that Paul can't see, but knowing that Paul can still feel and Paul can still hear, Ananias puts his hands on Paul's shoulders and says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, Yeah, you've done a lot, but you're not getting rejected. I'm here today because Jesus sent me. He is pursuing you like the hounds of heaven, and he's pursuing you with what you're experiencing right now through my words and through my hands, that he loves you, that he forgives you, that he accepts you, I'm telling you, we're, we're, we're all, if, 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 if we have anything going on with God, we're, we're going to come to vulnerable places like this. And I hope and pray that we are a church of Ananiases. That we don't judge that, that we don't scorn that. But when we see people crumpled up, that we know that, that God is doing a work in their lives, that God is in the process of undoing them so he can remake them, and that we get the privilege to be able to partner with God and to be his hands and his heart and his face and his voice and just come alongside of them. want that. I've been there. You've been there. And I see Paul, this man who's on this treadmill his whole life. And now in the arms of Ananias, probably for the first time, he is resting in the arms of God. Just resting. It's how we're changed. It's this, it's this collision of God's love and God's mercy and our humility and our repentance. From our end, we need to be undone so that Christ can remake us. I don't know if Paul had this text in his mind, but I know he knew it. And I don't know how his mind and heart couldn't have gone to a text like this and, and found great hope. Hosea 6, God says, come, let us return to the Lord. Though he has torn us to pieces, he will heal us. Though he has injured us, he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us. He will resurrect us that we may live in his presence. And that's exactly what God does. And look at verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. He can see. And there's that, that, there's that verb form again of resurrection. He, he rose up. He's, he, he's raised up. And then he's baptized. And the fact that Paul is baptized tells me how humble this man has become. Because in Paul's world, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, and it's something that happened more than you realize, 
that, that Gentile had to be baptized. No Jew would ever be baptized in this way. I mean, why would they be? We're already in. We, we already belong to God. So for Paul to be baptized, what he is really essentially doing, he is laying aside all of his Jewish status. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's laying it aside. I'm an Israelite, he's laying it aside. I'm a Pharisee, he's laying it aside. He's laying, as to Torah keeping, he's laying it aside. He's essentially taking on the status of a Gentile, of a pagan, of an outsider. And he humbles himself under God's almighty hand. And God lifts him up. God raises him up to new life. And he can see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I love the uh, chorus that we, the new chorus we've added to that. My chains are gone. They're gone. And I've been set free. Because that's what happens, this, this burden of self that, that we carry around, that we need to feed, that we need to prove, that we need to justify, that we need to promote, that we need to exalt. And that whole treadmill that we get on to do all of this, of being better, and we run faster and faster and faster. Paul set free of that. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also wrote an autobiography, and he, he, he speaks of this freedom that he experienced. He said, one day as I was passing through a field, suddenly this, this clause just fell on my soul. It hit me. Your righteousness, John, is in heaven. And for the first time, I saw with the eyes of my heart Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, John lacks righteousness, for it is always before him in Christ. Moreover, I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame could make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, at that moment, my chains fell off. I was set free from all guilt and fears. My temptations also fled away. And I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Do you know this? That Jesus is your righteousness. Because when this burns in your heart, it's going to change you from the inside out. It's going to set you free from guilt because I know, I know it. I, I, I still deal with this, which is why I have to preach the gospel to myself all the time. But some of you are still beating yourself up. Some of you are still feeling so guilty. Some of you even hate yourself. And here's your problem. Your problem is like Paul. It's not that you think too low of yourself. It's actually that you think too high of yourself. You're a sinner. Relax. God loves you. And your righteousness is in him. And here's the beautiful news of this story. If Paul, if God can change Paul, he can change anyone. And conversion only begins when you and I recognize that we cannot change our dragon skin. There's no self-help. There's no extreme makeover of the soul that we in and of ourselves can't cure ourselves. We need a Savior, and we have one. Come to him. Return to him. And maybe it's the first time you just put yourself in his hands and you invite his claw to go all the way down to your heart. But conversion is not a one-time thing. Conversion is a process of life. We're always being converted. And so today we're just going to create some space. In fact, I have the mikvah bowls up here if you want to come and, and, and just like Paul, just get on your knees and repent and wash God, thank you that you love us so much. Even those of us who call ourselves enemies of you, 
You love your enemies. You pursue them. And God, may we be found in you. And may we be found to have a righteousness that is not of our own, but a righteousness that is in your son, Jesus Christ. And that we could rest. That we could rest in your arms. And that we would repent. That we would turn. If my people will humble themselves and turn. Come to me, return to me. After two days, I will revive you. After the third day, I will resurrect you. Jesus, there's a reason why you see. Jesus, there's a reason why you said to the most religious people of your day that the pimps and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Because the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. The first will be last and the last will be first. God, would you do whatever you need to do to continue to humble ourselves? And that we would humble ourselves under your almighty hand, knowing that you will do the work of raising us up, that in two days you will revive us, and on the third day you will resurrect us. God, thank you that you love us that much. And God, like Isaiah, who was in your presence, and Paul, you looked at them and said, whom will I send? And they both said, Lord, here am I, send me. So God, we leave this place forgiven. We leave this place with your presence. We leave this place as sent ones into your world to be your hands, your feet, your heart, your face to a world that desperately needs Jesus. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit to overflowing so that we could do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, you guys. It's a beautiful church, isn't it? It's a beautiful church.